Crispin here on the North Shore Vineyard Church audio podcast. Today on the podcast, we have part 51 in our series on the Gospel of John. Today we come to uh, the command of Jesus to love one another. This is foundational to what it means to follow Jesus and to live out our life of faith. Be sure to keep the date open on December 6th. Friday night, we're going to be doing a live recording worship night featuring special guests from other vineyards in the Houston area and uh, New Orleans as well. So uh, want to join us for that. That'll be December 6th at 7 p.m. But other than that, let's go ahead and head to the talk. Thanks for listening. North Shore Vineyard Church, downtown Covington. If you're just joining us today, if this is your first time or if you haven't been around here long, we have been going through the Gospel of John for quite some time now. We come to part 51. And today we're going to pick up the Gospel of John in John chapter 13, verses 31 through 35. So you can listen or read along with me. Um, so here we go. Uh, just, to, just to let you, just a little recap of, of the, the, the last couple of weeks, we, we kind of left off. Uh, on, on one of the last passages where, where Judas uh, left the room. This is during the middle of Passover week, and Jesus is celebrating Passover with his disciples. And he tells them, as we said last week, one of you will betray me, and, and it was Judas. And Judas, he says, whatever you're going to do, do quickly. Judas leaves the room, and we know that the rest of the story, Judas goes out and betrays Jesus for 30 pieces of silver. So... Uh, This is where we picked up the story. So it it says, now when he, Judas, was gone, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. My children, I will be with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I will tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. A new command I give to you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must also love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. This is one of those passages in in all the Gospels that's one of those just high point passages. You know, Jesus didn't give a whole lot of commandments in his ministry. He gave, as far as I can tell, about three commandments. And this is the only, like, direct, flat-out commandment. The other... Uh, the other commandment is when somebody said, what's the greatest commandments in the, in the book of the law? And Jesus says, love the Lord your God with all your heart. And love your neighbor as yourself. He says the entire Old Testament, the entire Old Covenant, the prophets, the law, everything was summed up in that. And uh, so, so he kind of summed up the whole thing. But now we see that when Jesus is gathered with his disciples, he gives this one commandment. It's the most important commandment that Jesus ever gave. Uh, and it's the way that if we can endeavor to live this commandment in our life, uh, we, we go a long way to following uh, the ways of Jesus, the person of Jesus. So to get the weight of this passage, I want us to kind of step into the context a little bit. I want us to imagine, I want everyone in here to, to imagine that you're back 2,000 years ago and that you've been called by Jesus to be his disciple. And so I want to put these words of Jesus in the, in the context of how I want us to try to imagine how these words might have been for the original disciples. So imagine this morning that you, uh, that you are a, this, you, you're a 
person growing up in the, on the north shore of the Sea of Galilee instead of the north shore of Lake Pontchartrain. And you've been growing up in a little fishing village. And now you are working in the family business. And you go out and fish every day. Some of you are like, man, that's, that's awesome. I'm, 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 I'm fantasizing right now. Well, the, the only problem with this fantasy is that you're fishing for your livelihood. And times are getting increasingly tough because the Roman Empire is levying so much tax on you that you barely come home with anything. Between Herod's tax and the Romans' tax, every time you come to the dock at the end of the day with your catch, Rome and Herod take about half of everything you make. And so you're finding it very hard to just support your family, just to make it. But you have this hope in your heart, this hope for a Messiah. It's the hope that the people of Israel have shared for hundreds of years. And even though the, the prophetic has seemed to dry up for, for, for several hundred years and, and there's been no prophetic voices, you're beginning to, to have this expectation because you hear this guy, John the Baptist, is on the scene. And he is, he's going out there in the middle of the wilderness and he's saying, make way for the king. The king is coming. The Messiah is going to be here. So even though you're struggling financially, and even though times are tough, there's this expectancy in your life that things are going to change very soon. You hear rumors of a Messiah. Actually, many people begin to think that maybe John the Baptist is the Messiah, and they start asking him, are you the one? And John the Baptist says, no, I'm not the guy. In fact, I'm not even worthy to untie his sandal. He's coming I baptize you in water. He's coming to baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. So you hear these rumblings. You hear this expectation in the heart of the people in your village and, and all around the region of the north shore of the Sea of Galilee. And then one day you meet this Jesus. Actually, he's a guy who's, who's been living in your, your area for quite some time. And now you start to hear people saying that, that he's the Messiah. Even John the Baptist is saying, this is the guy. I saw the Spirit of God come upon him. And bit by bit, you begin to hear of the teaching ministry of Jesus. And then one day, he shows up. You're, you're sitting there with your fishing boat trying to clean your nets and everything. And Jesus, this guy that people are beginning to say is the Messiah, shows up. And he says, can I borrow your boat? Well, naturally, you say, yeah, sure. What do you want it for? You realize very quickly he's, he's going to use your boat to, to push out from the shore a bit so he can address the crowds. Because at this point, there's hundreds and hundreds of people who are gathering to hear the words of this rabbi, this prophet named Jesus. And so you sit there like the others, hanging on every word that Jesus says that day as he describes what the kingdom of God is like, as he talks about his heavenly father, as he talks about the world as he sees it. But you're not prepared for what happens next. For when Jesus returns with the boat to the shore, he says, look, I, I want you to come follow me. And instead of catching fish, we are going to apprehend men's hearts. We are going to draw people into the kingdom of God. And I want you to be a part of that. 
So for some reason that day, you don't even give it a second thought. You're just like, this is the greatest thing ever. ever. You drop your nets, you leave your fishing business, and you begin following this itinerant rabbi as he goes around telling people about the kingdom of God. And as you look back on this evening, three years later, as you're sitting in this room with Jesus and the other disciples who by now have become your closest family members, closer than your family that you even grew up with. As you look back, you consider what a crazy and wild ride it has been. You had no idea what you were getting into. You were there when Jesus gave the Sermon on the Mount. When he said, blessed are you, lucky bums, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. You were there for that. You were there when Jesus touched the lepers and healed them. You were there when Jesus drove off all the accusers of the adulterous woman when she was thrown half naked down at the feet of Jesus. You were there for that. You were there when Jesus stood up to the religious and called them whitewashed tombs. And you're like, dude, get them. You were there when Jesus talked to the Samaritan woman at the well. You were even there when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. You've seen all the amazing moments of his ministry, but you were also there for the things that nobody else saw, the mundane things. You were there for the, the, the hundreds of miles that you spent walking from village to village with Jesus, having conversations. You were there for the, the, the chats around the campfire in the evening with the other disciples and Jesus. You were there in the boat when they were going from one place to another. You were there that one time when that storm rolled up and you thought you were going to die. It was white knuckles all around. It seemed like this little boat that you were in was going to capsize as the winds blew, as the waves pounded. You were there when you saw Jesus walking on the water and all of a sudden he calmed the storm. You were there for that. And here you are in the middle of Passover week celebrating the, the time when God heard the cries of the children of Israel and delivered them from the slavery in Egypt. Here you are with this one who's been welcomed as the Messiah just a few days before. And things in your heart, you've just got such a mix of emotions because you think this is, this is where this whole thing's been going for these last three years. Here we are in Jerusalem and we're about to take over. Jesus is going to be the king. He's the Messiah. And guess what? I'm going to be on his ruling council. What a mix of emotions you have. But there's something in the midst of all this, this celebratory feeling that you have, all this anticipation and excitement of where this whole thing's been going, and that, that now the moment's just about arrived. There's something else that's hanging around the scenes. Because for some reason tonight, Jesus seems heavy. He seems to be weighed down with, with a weight that can't be comforted. In fact, he's just told me and, and the rest of the disciples that, that, that one of us is going to betray him. I, I can't even understand that. After all that we've been through, how anyone could betray him. And yet, he just said that. Jesus has done some, done some other crazy things this evening too. Right, right in the middle of dinner. Right when everybody's having a, a good time and, and, you know, passing the, the, the bread and 
the wine around. Right in the middle of that, he got up. And he took off his outer garment. This was the darndest thing you'd ever seen. And he began washing the feet of the disciples. It's the weirdest thing because I know we were just welcomed in with the Messiah just a few days ago, but yet everything he's doing seems opposite to what we think of a Messiah. He's doing a job that not any of us would even do for one another. And yet he says, do this for one another the same way I've done it for you. Not only that, this is what a weird, another weird thing that happened during dinner tonight. We're sitting there. It was the end of dinner. And Jesus took some bread. And he broke it. And he said, this is my body broken for you. And then he took a cup of wine. He says, this, this, this cup of wine is, is my blood. The blood of the new covenant poured out for you. Do this. Take this bread and this, this cup. Do this in remembrance of me. Then after all that, Jesus finally said something that, I don't know, for some reason it just seemed to sum up everything that he's done all these years of, of reflecting, all these years of looking back on the, the healings, the miracles, the, the preaching, the teaching, everything he's done. He says, tonight, I want to tell you one thing, love one another the way I have loved you. I wanted to start this message with a time of reflecting on this because do you see maybe this morning how those words might have felt to you as a disciple? Jesus is taking the entire scope of his ministry and he's saying this is what it boils down to. You guys love one another the way that I have loved you. This is an incarnational message. Actually, Jesus is not merely preaching with words. It's interesting in Jesus' ministry, we, we're familiar with all the parables, all the preaching and teaching that Jesus has done along the way. But now, now we see that Jesus' biggest message isn't delivered with words. It's a meal. Jesus' biggest message isn't, isn't a teaching. It's washing feet. And Jesus sums up this message with these very, this very small sentence. Love one another the way that I've loved you. The things that I've done for you this whole time, you do that for one another. These will be the things that mark you as my followers. I suspect this morning, if, if you ask most people in America what it means to be a Christian, what it means to be a part of the church, the answers you are going to get are going to be something along the lines of, well, it just depends what, probably where they've grown up in the country. Some people may say to be a Christian means that you have to have prayed the prayer, the sinner's prayer. Or to be a Christian means that, that you, you, you go to church each week. Actually, for many people, uh, when you say the word church, they, they, they may think of a building. What does it mean to be a Christian? Well, you have to have certain moral standards or, 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 or certain doctrinal beliefs or certain theological assumptions about Christ. I was actually a part of traditions, um, uh, groups of people that uh, followed uh, certain churches back in the early days of my walk with Jesus. And, and certain Christians uh, 
that I got around said that, that in order to be a Christian, you, you have to speak in tongues. That's the proof, because you're, you're, you're a Christian. Certain people said that if you're, the proof that you're a, a, a Christian is that you're, you're wealthy, that you're always getting blessed in your finances and your health. But I love what Jesus does here because he takes down all of these markers, all these things that, that, that we use to identify ourselves as Christians, and he whittles them down to this. The people who follow me will be marked as my disciples, not by their church buildings, not by their health, their wealth, their spiritual gifts, their oratory skills, their talents. They will be marked, not by correct doctrine, not by theology, not by their stance on social issues, not by the little fish on the back of their car, not by bumper stickers, not by the frequency with which they watch TV preachers or listen to Christian music. They will be marked by one thing, the way that they love one another. I really wish we could get away with just marking, you know, just putting a fish on the back of our car like, I'm a, I'm a Christ follower, I'm a Christian. It says so on my Facebook profile. Trust me. <laughs> Where it says religious preference, I put Christian. Uh, I wish it was that easy. But the reality is, the proof is in the way that we love one another. 1 Corinthians 13, the Apostle Paul elaborates on this. He says, if I speak in the tongues of men and angels, but do not have love, I'm only a resounding gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and knowledge, and if I have faith that can move to move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. I love what Paul is getting at. He's getting at the ways we identify ourselves as Christian. I'm a, I'm a faith guy. I'm a spiritual gifts guy. No, I'm a social justice guy. No, no, no. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a martyr guy. <laughs> I'm a martyr. Paul says, you can be burned at the stake. You can have the faith to, 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 to speak to a mountain. It can be moved. You can have amazing insight on the scriptures. But without love, you got nothing. Nothing. John, the one who wrote the Gospel of John, he wrote a letter to, to the church. It's called 1 John. At least that's what we call it. Um, in, verse, in, in chapter 2, verse 3, he says, We know that we've come to know him if we keep his commands. Whoever says, I know him, but does not do what he commands is a liar. And the truth is not in that person. What did Jesus command? Love one another as I loved you. I mean, John's the guy who recorded the command of Jesus. But if anyone obeys his word, the love of God is truly made complete in him. This is how we know that we are in him. Whoever claims to live in him must live as Jesus did. Again, we come back to what's going on in this, in this Passover feast with Jesus. Love one another as I have loved you. If we claim to, to, to follow Jesus, then we need to do what he did. Primarily, love one another. Dear friends, I'm not writing you a new command, but an old one, which you have had since the beginning. This old command is the message you have heard. Yet I'm writing you a new command. It is tr its truth is seen in him and in you because the darkness is passing and the true light is already shining. Anyone who claims to be in the light but hates a brother or sister is still in the darkness. 
Anyone who loves their brother and sister lives in the light, and there's nothing in them to make them stumble. But anyone who hates a brother or sister is in the darkness and walks around in the darkness. They do not know where they are going because darkness has blinded them. I grew up out in Midland, Texas, and when I was in high school, um, the, the Ku Klux Klan decided to do a rally. And this was a big deal because they, they didn't have much going on out there. And they, I don't know, it's weird that they did a public rally. But they, they did a public rally, and I was on the high school newspaper, so I went out there to, to, to take pictures of it. And it was a big deal. And uh, hundreds of people showed up to protest. And they actually had, you know, death threats on the people. So you had the SWAT teams out there. It was just, it was just crazy for little Midland, Texas. But, but the thing that blew me away, I wasn't even following Jesus that time. And, 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 and get this, this is, this, is, this is where outsiders, people outside the church can tell whether you're a Christian or not <laughs> by this proof of Jesus. I wasn't following Jesus. But I, I could tell something that morning. These KKK people were holding up signs that said things that I can't say in church. Probably know what they would be. And yet at the same time, on their PA system, they were playing worship songs. Songs that I'd heard in church as a, as a, as a kid. And they were blasting them out. Songs proclaiming the love and goodness of God, the glory of God. And even though I wasn't following Jesus, I was like, something ain't right here. They're liars. <laughs> and that's exactly what John is saying here. He says, if you claim to live in the light, but you hate people, you're a liar. You're not walking in the light. You know the Westboro Baptist crowd that goes around telling America and everybody how much like God hates you. <laughs> uh, and, and they'll tell you, they, we hate you too. <laughs> <laughs> they claim to follow God, but they're liars. They're lying. The truth is not in them. They're not walking in the light. They're walking in darkness. John tells us, Jesus tells us, the proof that you are a follower of Jesus is the way you love one another. That's the proof. That's the proof. I came across this recently. Did you know in the in the first uh, in the first couple of hundred years of the the church, there were some non-believing Jews and pagans who brought criticism against the church. One guy was a guy named Celsus. He was a he was a Jewish guy, and he said the early Christians were idiots because your own prophets said that when the Messiah comes, that the nations of the world will make war no more. So if Jesus was the Messiah, how come all the nations of the world are making war? Like, he can't be the Messiah. But you know what the, the response of the early church fathers was? And I love this. It said this, Jesus was the Messiah. The church comprises people of every tongue and tribe who used to make war with each other. But they've been baptized, and they no longer make war with one another. They no longer learn war. The nonviolent church is the apologetic of Jesus being 
the Messiah. I love that. The proof that Jesus is God is that there's a group of people on planet Earth made up of people who used to hate each other, who used to fight each other, and now in Jesus they've been reconciled to God and to one another. That's the proof that Jesus is king. You know, I as a pastor, I go to all kinds of conferences and and there's all kinds of books and, and people talking about church growth. If you want to grow your church, you got to have this program and you got to do this kind of multimedia thing and and serve this kind of coffee and do this kind of all kinds of strategies for how to evangelize, how to how to get more people in your church. And I'm I'm telling you, I'm convinced. I'm convinced that the biggest evangelical evangelistic tool for the church, the biggest uh, tool for for getting people to be a part of the church is not our programs, it's not our buildings, it's not our cool worship music, it's not our lights, it's not the, the things we do in the community, it's the way that we love one another. When people come into a group of people and they see that Democrats, Republicans, they're hanging out. People from both sides of the tracks. Rich people, poor people. And they see folks who outside of the church would not get along for anything, but who have been reconciled because of Jesus. That is a testimony that he is king. You know, a friend of mine planted a church in, in Hollywood, right on the strip. Uh, he's a guy who, we actually do some of his songs here, David Roos. And uh, I was talking to him one day. I was like, what's that like, having a church on the Hollywood Strip? He said, it's kind of crazy. We have, he's like, you show up at our church and we've got a pretty wide variety of people. You will see movie stars here and you will see homeless people who stumble in off the street. And they're all joining together singing the praises of Jesus, some with alcohol in their breath, <laughs> some smelling like they haven't had a shower in months because they haven't. Some people who are record executives. Some people who are just normal folks, young people, old people, black, white, Mexican, Asian, joining to celebrate Jesus. This is what we've invited to be a part of. And this is the central message of Jesus. Think about this. Jesus, in his final moment before he goes to the cross, he could leave his disciples with anything. And he boils it all down to this. You guys love one another the way that I've loved you. If we are going to truly follow Jesus, we can't hate people anymore. We can't hold in unforgiveness and resentment. We can't do that. We let that go. We repent of that. We submit to Jesus. We do our best to serve, to love, to forgive, to walk in humility. And when we do, people will see that Jesus is in our life. People will see that we are followers of the King. Now today, I want to close with this. I said this at the beginning, and I'll say it now. When Jesus could speak his final words to his disciples. He didn't offer some elaborate teaching. He didn't preach at them. He gave them a meal. And that meal speaks 
louder than words itself. He gave them foot washing. <laughs> he gave them an example. Jesus said after he washed their, their feet, he says, now I want you to do the same thing for one another. Was Jesus meaning that they needed to wash each other's feet all the time? Well, they could. But I think Jesus was pointing at the reality the same way that I have lowered myself and served you, done the most disgusting job that could be done in our culture at that time. I want you to serve one another. Nothing is beneath you. And then Jesus gives them the meal, his body broken for them, his blood poured out, the new covenant. And he says, do this in remembrance of me. Was Jesus saying that I want you to just celebrate communion all the time? Probably. That's part of it. But I think even more than that, he was getting at the reality towards which communion point toward, towards which communion points. I want you to be broken and poured out for one another in the same way that I've been broken and poured out for you. Communion is a way to celebrate our being reconciled to God. It's a way for us to celebrate God's love for us. But it's also about celebrating and remembering what Jesus has called us to. He's called us to the lofty goal, the glamorous, amazing worldwide ministry of humbling ourselves, laying our lives down, loving one another as he has loved us. This morning, I want to invite Penny and Faith up here, um, and they're going to, to give us communion this morning. And I'm going to lead us in a worship song. And after you're done uh, with, with communion, uh, just join me in singing the song that we sang in worship earlier. Take the body broken for you. Take the cup. And remember Jesus. Remember what he's called you to. You can make your way up anytime you feel, feel like it.